Well, the passage this morning you'll see is printed in your bulletin. It comes from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. We are in the midst of working through the book of Romans, but as is our custom, we stop for a few weeks in the Advent season uh, to look at the passages about the birth of Christ. Last week we looked at John's Gospel, chapter 1. This morning we look at the birth of Christ uh, through Luke's description in Luke chapter 2. So let me ask you to follow along in your bulletins or your Bibles. If you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's Word through Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Would you please be seated and would you join me in a word of prayer? Father in heaven, we come before you this morning. We thank you most especially for these words recorded in your Gospels, in our Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John recording the Advent and the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for this. We ask, Lord God, that these words would be much more than a nice story that we tell at Christmas time. We ask that as we read these words, we would see truly the story of redemption in the coming down of the God of the universe. That we would see that our God and Creator came near to us by humbling Himself that we might be called children of God. And so from His advent and birth to His death and resurrection, may we see, Lord God, one story, one account of the plan of redemption established before the foundation of the earth for our redemption and for your glory. And may we, Lord God, be moved to glorify you and to praise you. We thank you for this and ask that you'd be present here with us this morning. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear for your glory. In your name we ask all of this. Amen. This morning, we're going to be uh, looking again at this, uh, the birth of Christ as Luke accounts it in Luke chapter 2. And before I begin, I'd like to say that as we, we think about uh, the birth of Christ and his incarnation in the Gospels, I, I think that there are parts of this that are uh, really hard for us to comprehend or to understand, that we, we struggle in our understanding of the incarnation. And one of the reasons I think we, we do struggle so much is what I would call the cruise ship mentality, okay, the cruise ship mentality, and I want to explain what I mean uh, with a little story. 
My children have only ever been on one cruise, all right? And they went on a cruise with my wife and I maybe five years ago. And as you would expect, uh, they loved every part of the cruise. They enjoyed the food that they got to eat and the shows they got to see and the beautiful beaches that they got to enjoy. But I think most of all, they enjoyed the sense of entitlement that comes with cruising. Kind of whatever you want, whenever you want it, you can have it. You want pizza, at any hour of the day, you can have pizza. Ice cream for breakfast, you can have it. Sleep in till noon, and then go see a show, you can do it, right? It's the sense of entitlement. And so it was interesting to us that on maybe the last day or the second to last day of the cruise, as we were sharing a meal together, that we asked our children what was their favorite part of the cruise. And one of our children told us, well, we loved everything about the cruise, but my favorite part was that everything was free. (laughs) And like a, a good parent, I explained to them, what do you mean everything was free? We worked really hard to pay for this cruise so that you could enjoy the food that you're eating. Nothing was free on this cruise. But that's the entitlement mentality. I would say it's a mentality that, that often defines our generation in this place, right? That, that we deserve certain things simply by virtue of who we are. That we have certain entitlements. And I believe not only is, is that not the way that life works, right? Everything in life is costly to some degree, but it also hinders us from understanding the gospel and the advent of Jesus Christ because The work of Christ from the very beginning is costly on our behalf. And if we feel a sense of entitlement, we will miss the price that that Jesus will pay on our behalf, beginning with his humiliation as he humbles himself being born of a virgin, as we read about in Luke chapter 2. Now here's the three questions I want to answer this morning I think will help us to navigate the passage This is the outline for the passage this morning. First of all, how does Christ come into the world? So we'll look at the passage and we'll talk about that. Why does Christ come in this way? And then finally, what does it mean for us? Okay, What does it mean for us that Christ comes in this way and and that he comes for a particular reason? What does it mean for the way that we ought to live as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ? So first of all, how does Jesus come into the world? I want to talk about the passage, and I want to do that uh, through the lens of the Old Testament prophets. So I want to talk about a few uh, passages from the Old Testament. First of all, Daniel 2, verse 2. In Daniel 2, hundreds of years before the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, the prophet Daniel said that during the reign of the fourth kingdom, that is the Roman Empire, during the peak of the reign of the Roman Empire, that the Lord God would establish an everlasting kingdom. Right? Those are the, the words of the prophet Daniel looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so because Daniel prophesies this coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, we read in verses 1 and 2 this morning these words. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all of the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. You see, we begin reading in Luke's account, and he places us in a certain place and time so that we would know that Jesus Christ was born in the midst of the pinnacle of the Roman Empire. Caesar Augustus 
was the first Caesar who initiated what is known as Pax Romana, right? The Roman peace. It is the pinnacle of the Roman Empire. That the empire was more extensive than it had ever been this point, uh, from this point uh, be, uh, before and this point beyond. It was the, the greatest accomplishment uh, of any human empire ever seen in the history of humanity. And Daniel prophesied that during this time, God would establish his everlasting kingdom. And so Luke, thankfully and rightfully, tells us that at the time when Caesar Augustus was reigning, when Quirinius was the governor of Syria, that God sent forth his son to be born of a virgin. And so that is in fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy. Micah, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, a passage that many of you are are likely familiar with, the the prophet Micah says, You, O Bethlehem, though you are small, from you will come one who will rule over my people Israel. Right, and that's sort of an, an astounding promise to make. Little old Bethlehem. Where you might not expect much to come from Bethlehem. Micah says, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, that from Bethlehem, God would establish a ruler over his people Israel. So for this reason, Luke tells us in verse 3, And all went to be registered each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. You see what was happening Caesar Augustus, the emperor over Rome, Quirinius, the governor of Syria. Caesar Augustus decides that there's going to be a registration. There's going to be a census. There's many reasons he would have registered his people. I think three of the most prominent is, first of all, he was likely a prideful man. And he wanted to see just how extensive his empire actually was. But the second reason was, as the empire was growing, it was harder and harder to bring all peoples into conformity, to, to pay allegiance to the Roman Empire. And so as these, these men and women were being registered, they were made to read a statement of allegiance to the Roman Empire. And then the third reason was for taxation, that, that they would be uh, quantified and then that they would know how they would be taxed in what particular province and, and by how much they would be taxed. And so for this reason, Caesar Augustus calls for a registration, a census. As you're reading this passage, I think you ought to be encouraged and find it interesting that that God, simply to make Christ to be born in Bethlehem, according to the promise of Micah, that God rearranges the whole world. You see how he, he brings about his purposes through whatever means he designs. And if it be necessary that the world be arranged, that the Messiah be born in Bethlehem, so be it that the Lord God would rearrange the whole world. And so the passage tells us as we're reading it, it tells us that, that uh, Joseph and Mary were from a town in Nazareth in the north part of Galilee. Now this is the, the Mediterranean Sea in Israel, and in the northern part is the Sea of Galilee. You, you likely know Galilee because this is where Jesus spends most of his ministry, the three years that he ministers. It's where most of his disciples are from, the northern region of Israel just near Syria. And on the Sea of Galilee is the little town of Nazareth. 
And in the south of Israel is Jerusalem, and to the southeast of Jerusalem is Bethlehem. So when Augustus causes a registration to be taken and a census to be accounted for, uh, Joseph, who was from the family of David, uh, David is, uh, takes his wife, who is now with child, child about to be born, and they venture the roughly 100 miles, probably through Jerusalem, down the Jordan River to the small town of Bethlehem. It's absolutely amazing to me just to think that months earlier, as the angel makes the promise to Joseph and to Mary, as they consider that, that Jesus was to be born, Emmanuel, God with us, and they're wondering, how is this all going to work out? One of the many questions that might have been asked is, well, I thought the Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. And we're from Nazareth. Something doesn't seem right here. Right? But as the events unfold, God causes it to be so that Joseph and Mary would be rearranged, that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem according to the promises of Micah, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Simply amazing. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 49, 7, and then in chapter 53, as you read this morning, maybe the most significant as we read this passage this morning, in Isaiah 49.7, Isaiah the prophet says that Jesus, that the Messiah would come and that he would be the servant of rulers. And as you read Isaiah, many of the uh, people who uh, were contemporaries with Isaiah, they didn't like Isaiah for many reasons. One of the reasons was as he spoke about the Messiah, he spoke about a suffering servant. And there wasn't quite categories for understanding how he would be the Messiah and yet how he would be rejected and he would suffer. 49.7 says he would be the servant of rulers. He would be low and meek. Isaiah 53, you just heard Rick read it aloud. It says that he would be rejected. He would be scorned. He would be reviled. That men would want nothing to do with him and, and yet for their sins, the iniquity would be laid upon him. In Isaiah's prophecies, in 49 and 53 and in other parts of Isaiah, Isaiah says that the Messiah would come and that he would be, and I'm going to write this in red so you can see it, that he would be low, that he would be poor, that he would be meek and mild. This is how Isaiah uh, characterizes the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Luke records, beginning in verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in the manger because there was no place for them in the inn. I think especially in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not so much in John's record of the birth of Christ, but especially in the Synoptic Gospels, one of the most uh, obvious characteristics that define the birth of Jesus Christ is that he is born in lowly estate, meek and mild. Just consider the scenario for a second. From Luke chapter 1 all the way through Luke 3, this is the picture that is being painted for us. Jesus Christ is born to young teenage parents, right, who are impoverished and who lack affluence, Okay? who are, out, uh, because of circumstances outside of their control, are caused to be married before they had planned to be married. Who are now having their lives joined together out of the providence of God, and then are being displaced from their home, and they end up in a place where they know 
no one. I think if they knew someone, they would have had a place to stay, okay? And so they lack means, and they lack affluence, and they end up in Bethlehem, and oh, here comes the baby, okay? And they can't find a place to stay. They can't afford to pay the money likely needed to find one of those rooms. And so they end up in a barn with animals, right? And Jesus is wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger. That's a very nice way to say what the text actually says, right? Because the Greek says that he was wrapped in tattered cloths, that they probably ripped or rendered from their cloaks or the head coverings, that he was laid in what we call manger. Manger sounds so nice, doesn't it? Okay, a feeding trough for animals where hay or grain or water might have been stored. There Christ was laid. The picture of Christ's entrance into the world is of a person impoverished by every uh, meaning of the word. And if you just think about uh, Mary and Joseph at this moment, you, you probably can resonate with what this feels like. Have you ever been at a moment where you feel like, Things can't get worse, and then they do, right? Like the cards are stacked against you. Okay, I, I have to imagine that at points, Mary and Joseph felt like that. Like they knew the promise that God had given them, and they knew that this son that was to be born of, of, of the Holy Spirit and, and through Mary was to be a special child, but I don't think they knew all that was in store for them as they ventured to Bethlehem. And after this, they flee to Egypt, Okay? I'm not sure they knew that all that was in store for them, and I imagine there were moments where they just kind of wanted to lay down and give up. But that's human nature, right? After so many blows, you just kind of want to not go forward any longer. And if we think we can resonate with them, I think in some ways we can, and yet our version of poverty and theirs, there's no comparison. For a young teenage couple during this period of time, if you had not, you went without. And if you went without long enough, you died and the world moved on. It's the nature of poverty during this time. This is what Jesus Christ is born into. This is the way he comes forth, lowly, meek, mild, and in poverty. So let me ask the second question then. If this is the way he comes, why does he come in this way? What's the purpose for coming in such lowly estate? Well, you know, I want to tell you, first of all, I think there are many wrong answers to that question that are often talked about, okay? And you've probably even heard preachers who will preach on this very thing. Let me give you some of the wrong answers. First of all, Jesus didn't come in this way simply to resonate with those who are poor, though that's part of what Christ does. But that's not the meaning of why he comes humble and lowly, because he also came for those who are wealthy. He came to save those who are finding comfort in this world in their belongings and possessions. That is true, okay? He didn't simply come impoverished, lowly, humble, mild, and meek. He didn't simply come in that way because he loves us, though he does, okay? He didn't come in this way to show us that wealth is wrong. I've heard sermons about that, okay? He didn't come to wage war against Uh, money and resources. He didn't come in this way to stick it to the man. Right? You've probably heard that before. Uh, He didn't come to wage class warfare. 
or to start a revolution against the ruling class. That's not what Christ came to do. And if we find in Christ's coming those things, we are bringing those ideas into the text. You will not find those in the Word of God. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul tells us why Christ came in this way. He tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I want to write that. 2 Corinthians 8. In verse 9. Listen to what Paul the Apostle says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that through His poverty you might become rich. Did you hear that? For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that through His poverty you might become rich. Why does Christ come in this way? He comes poor so that we can become rich. Come, he came poor so that we can become, so that we could be rich. You see, I think this is one of the reasons why if we carry the entitlement mentality, it is one of the reasons why we fail to see exactly what's going on in the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, if we think that we simply deserve good things because we are inherently good, or there is something good and redeemable about us, we miss the meaning of the incarnation, that Christ came and humbled himself and became poor and lowly and submitted himself to the creation that he himself created. He did so so that we might be exalted, and it cost him something. It's a very costly salvation that Christ came to work out on our behalf. This is at his advent, this, this is the meaning of everything that Christ would come to do, right? This is the foreshadow of the work that Christ would do in his life. It was establishing from the very beginning that Christ came to lower himself, to give of himself, to become a servant, to become a slave. To be poor that we might be rich and exalted and saved and redeemed and elevated and made to be children of the living God. This, beloved, is why Christ entered the world in this way. His birth was a summary of his entire life. It is an advent of a life of poverty that was designed for a particular purpose because from his entrance to his exit, from his life to his death, Jesus Christ entered the world that through his poverty we might become rich. Poverty then was a sign of the things that Christ came to do. And just as he became poor so that we could become rich, he suffered so that we could find rest, he died so that we could live. This whole passage in Luke chapter 2 this morning, actually speaks about that. You think about this from the beginning of the passage to the end, beginning in verse 1. It says, in those days, during the reign of Caesar Augustus, in the first verse, what do we hear? We hear that Christ came to be counted among people who were not his own so that we could be counted among the children of God. Right? He humbled himself under the authority of the Roman Empire as a citizen of Rome, again, among people who are not his own, so that we could be called children of God. He came to little old Bethlehem. Bethlehem, you know what Bethlehem means? It means the house of bread. 
A lot of people point out how beautiful this is. He came to the house of bread to be the bread of life. Right? Born in the house of bread to, to be the bread of life. How amazing is that? He came as a foreigner. Isn't that significant? He wasn't born in Nazareth where I was like, oh, we all know Mary and Joseph and that's Jesus. We all are family here. We've known each other for so long. He came displaced as a foreigner in Bethlehem where everybody said, who's that? I don't know who that is. We don't get a place for them. They're strange people. They don't belong here. He came as a foreigner so that we could find a home and glory with mansions made for us. Mary wrapped him in tattered cloths. They were torn from their cloaks, again, or their head coverings, right? Wrapped him in old rags that we would be clothed in royal linens. As children of the king. Laid him in a feeding trough as a picture that, that this is the bread of life, living water. If we eat of him, we will have life. There he was in a feeding trough. See the pictures that are being painted in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ from the very beginning. The picture was clear that he came to lower himself that we might be exalted. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. This is the meaning of Christmas. This is it. The Christmas is meaningless apart from this. There is no other meaning of Christmas. The incarnation of Jesus Christ to come to save us through, by lowering himself that we might be lifted up. This is the meaning of Christmas. So let, let me ask then the, the, the final question here. What does it mean for us? What does it mean for us that Christ came and he lowered himself. First of all, this is the good news. That's ultimately what it means for us. But I think also as we read the, the gospel story, the advent and the incarnation of Christ, and as we move forward in the New Testament, the writers of the epistles will all exhort and encourage us with this thought. If this is how our Savior came, low, poor, meek, and mild, that through his poverty we might be rich, then this has great implications for the way we live in this world. You know, ultimately our, our calling as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be imitators of Christ. So let me ask you a question. It, it may be an uncomfortable question, that's okay. That's my job. I ask uncomfortable questions, okay? Um, who is becoming rich through your poverty? Who's becoming rich through your poverty, right? How are you lowering yourself so that others might be exalted? I mean, are you doing that? All right, if we're to be imitators of Christ in this, then the calling for us is that there would be some sort of sacrificial way of life that would elevate others, that would serve others so that we be imitators of Christ. The Bible says this is the way that the world knows Christ. That as we live like him, they will see him in us. And they will say something is different about that group of people. This is a counterintuitive way of living. Let me tell you something. I, I don't think we're great at this. I say we. I'm not saying you. I'm saying we. All of us together. We're not great at this. You could probably, if you want to kind of we, uh, entitlement mentality that kind of exists in our generation. If you want to hear what that sounds like, it sounds like words like deserve, okay? And everybody uses the word deserve 
when you think about the call to lower yourself to, to serve others, often I hear this phrase, deserve. Well, I have worked hard for these things. I deserve to enjoy them. Right? That's, a, that's a phrase I often hear. I have gone to X number of years of schooling. I deserve this type of lifestyle. Okay? Right? The, the word deserve clearly communicates entitlement, doesn't it? Uh, uh, Christ never said that uh, money was evil. I deserve to enjoy my money. Okay? What I'm not saying is that money is evil or that your resources are not to be enjoyed. I'm not saying that. Nor am I even talking about idolatry, though that's a problem. Idolatry of the heart, isn't it? What I am saying is that we have a higher calling. We've been called to be imitators of Christ. And if you go through the New Testament, what it means to be an imitator of Christ more than anything else, the writers of the epistles will say it means this more than anything else. Let me show you, actually. I think this is significant. Every time that I can find the mention of, of the lowliest state of Jesus Christ in the epistles, it's always joined together with an exhortation. Not one writer in any of the epistles will ever say, listen, this is how Jesus lived. He lowered himself to serve you, and then we'll just move on. All of them will marry it together with an exhortation to the church to be as Christ is. Let me, let me give you a few examples just so you know I'm not making this up, okay? Again, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. I mentioned it earlier. It's right here. Okay, 2 Corinthians 8 in verse 9. The Apostle Paul says of the Lord Jesus Christ that he became poor that we might be rich. And then Paul uses that to say, this is what he says to the believers in Corinth. He says, now because of this, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. So let me ask you a question. How are you doing in excelling in the grace of giving? I mean, there's, there's no standard. I can't give you a template and say, okay, if you're doing this, this, and this, you're doing really well in excelling in the grace of giving. But you, you know it, right? It's, it's very intuitive. Ask yourself the question, how am I doing in excelling in the grace of giving? All right? Let me give you another passage, Philippians 2. I mean, I'm only going to give you three because we don't have room for 50 verses on the, on the board here. Philippians 2. Uh, Paul says to the Christians in Philippi, he says that Christ Jesus emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Right? And when we hear that, those passages, we always say, yes, that's what Jesus did for us. Isn't that amazing? And then Paul moves on in verse 3. Listen to what he says. Therefore, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See what Paul did? Christ came, lowly, humbled himself, meek and mild, therefore. So let me ask you a question. How are you doing at counting others more significant than yourselves? How are you doing at looking out not for, only for your own interest, but the interest of others? How are you doing being imitators of Christ? One other passage, and then we'll wrap this up. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 1, okay? So here's Peter. Peter says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Do you hear what he's saying? For to this you've been called. It's a calling. It is not an optional thing. It's not like for some really good Christians who learn how to serve others in great ways, okay? For to this you have been called. 
Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. How do you follow in the steps of Jesus? You become a servant like he became a servant. That's what Peter said. He suffered for you, therefore you are called to suffer for others. Beloved, let me tell you this, life is not a cruise ship, okay? It's not full of a bunch of free things, like meals and entertainment, all right? The entitlement mindset is a fairy tale. It's not real. Everything in this world comes at a cost. How are you doing at being an imitator of Christ by laying down your life for the sake of others? Especially when we experience bounty and prosperity, we must remember that these things are given by God so that we might be imitators of the Lord Jesus Christ. And for every person that has, there is another who has not. For every one of your brothers and sisters in Christ who is at rest, who is at peace, who has much to rejoice over, there is another who is struggling. And another who is at war. And another who is mourning and suffering. Our call is very simple, to follow our Savior in this. To follow our Savior in being servants that through our poverty others might be made rich. See, Luke 2 is an account of Christ's entrance into this world, and it tells us that Jesus Christ, the God of the universe, came into the world poor, empty, and lowly. And this was not out of a peculiar circumstance or a bunch of uh, strange, ironic occurrences. This was by the design of God from before the foundation of the earth. That the king of glory, the eternal God of the universe, would lower himself, would enter into the world impoverished and with nothing as a picture of the work that he came to do, that he would be emptied for our sake, impoverished and humiliated, that we might be richly exalted. That's the beautiful part of the story. And now... He calls us to do the same. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is the good news. This is the story of the birth of Christ, but not just the birth of Christ, of the life of Christ and of the death of Christ on our behalf that we might be exalted and lifted up. May we then, as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ, continue to be imitators in this, that as we serve those around us, they too would be drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that you sent him in this world. And we thank you, Lord God, that though he is highly exalted, that his name is above all names, that he is King of kings and Lord of lords. We thank you that he came 
not as a king. But he came as a pauper. He came as a poor infant child. Born in a place not his home. In a way that no child ought to be born. Wrapped in rags, laid in a trough. And we thank you that even at that moment when Christ came into the world, the story was already being written. That this one, Jesus Christ, would be the Savior of the people of God. And that he saved not by might or by power, but he saved by laying down his life, the perfect Lamb of God. Giving himself over as a sacrifice. Suffering on our behalf, forfeiting all that was his by virtue of who he was. Submitting to the will of the Father taking the wrath, the penalty for our sin, carrying it to the grave, being crucified, buried, and then raising again by the power of God. All of this so that we would be richly exalted. And so we ask our Father this morning, would you help us not only to rejoice, Rejoice in this exaltation. But would you help us to carry forth this burden that we have been called now to be imitators of our Savior. For we have been buried with Him and we have been raised with Him. And now we are called to go forth with Him that the world would see Jesus Christ. Lord God, We ask this morning that everything we say and do would be pleasing to you, that you would be honored and lifted up. It is in your name we ask all of these things. Amen.